0: As we begin uh, this weekend, I just want to give a shout-out to our 95th campus. They had their Trunk or Treat event uh, today, and uh, they had hundreds uh, show up. And they reached out and blessed our special needs community. And uh, I just think that was showing the love and the grace of God. So I want to thank all of 95th, their congregation, staff, every volunteer who was involved in that. And Hopson, let's give them a hand. All right? So... Praise God! I mean, that's what that's what ministry is all about, and be able to uh, use this time of the year to uh, bless others is a very unique thing here at Hobson. Did any of you visit truck or Treat? That I see any hands going up? All right. So it's great and a great exciting opportunity. Now, let me set you up for what we're going to do uh, this weekend. The message I want to share with you. Um, has some different aspects to it. It's a little different than I normally do. We're going to cover scripture. We're going to cover history. We're going to cover prophecy, all right? And we're taking a 30,000-foot view as we do that, as we finish up our series, Letter to the Candidates. As we do that, I'm going to be zooming through a lot of uh, data and facts. And as I do that, I just want to encourage you not not to sit there and try to catch everything with notes, now, you can do that if you want. You can try if you want, all right? I encourage you, if, it, if you want to hear it again, want to get into it, that you uh, go online, listen to it, or, or get a DVD, and you'll be able to kind of rehearse it again. And I just want to say that so you won't uh, flood me afterwards and say, could you slow it down a little bit? Because then you'd be here till 10 o'clock, all right? And I know you don't want to do that because the Tigers are playing tonight. And everybody wants to see Detroit, all right? Now, I realize 95th, you're seeing this tomorrow, and it's either good news or bad news, all right, if you're a Tiger fan by tomorrow. I am a Tiger fan, just so you know that, all right? Any other Tiger fans? Oh, okay, we have a few, all right? Okay. Anybody that doesn't like the Tigers? Oh, man. Oh, wow. Well, Okay, so what? Well, you're a Cubs fan. I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, as we get started this weekend, I want to switch from trying to be kind of silly to being extremely serious. And what I want to say to you is this. I believe that the way we, that means our nation, our government, the way we treat Israel, is going to have a determining effect on our future that is just as great as how we deal with our national debt and how we deal with the moral dilemma that our nation is facing. In other words, I believe with all my soul that how we handle Israel has a lot to do with how God is going to handle us as we think about the future. Now, having said that, let me also say that there are believers out there, pastors out there, leaders out there who would disagree with me. There are those who believe today that Israel has been replaced with the church. It's called replacement theology. It just simply means that the promises that were made to Israel really now are for the church. And so Israel, the Jewish people, no longer have a special status or unique relationship to God, nor is the land all that unique either when we think about the actual state of Israel, the land of Israel. And I believe that that kind of thinking is, is dangerous. I believe it is not biblical. That's me. Okay, that's what I believe, what I'm convicted about. I believe it's based more on tradition than it is on scripture, and I think the implications of it are not good. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, why would believers, pastors, scholars, preachers view it that way then? And I'll tell you why, but first I want us to see why I believe the, Bible's make it very, the Bible makes it very, very clear that God's people are still unique to him. And that that land is still a promise that he has given to them. And why that becomes important in the future as we think about prophecy and our nation. So you ready to go? We're going to start in Genesis chapter 12 because we know that Israel was born out of Abraham and Sarah. And God spoke some very important words to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to start reading at about verse 30. It says, excuse me, at verse 1, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Genesis 12, 1, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. Now, the reason I think that passage is so important is because it says that those who bless you will be blessed. And Israel has had had no closer, greater friend In the United States, those who curse you, those who come against you, will be cursed. Now, David Jeremiah, who is a pastor and is on the radio and writes a lot of books, wrote a book. What in the world is going on? And he deals with this passage, and he says there are there are at least four promises just in those scriptures alone. He says, first of all, God promises to bless Abraham. And God has blessed Abraham. Look at Israel today, all right? And there's no way you could account for Israel's presence without saying that God has been involved. God has definitely been involved with them. Mark Twain, a long time ago, wrote these very profound words. He said, Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous dim puff of stardust in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of. He is as prominent on this planet as any other people. His commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contributions to the world's list of Great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and abstruse learning are altogether out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in the world in all ages, and he has done it with his hands tied behind him. Why? Because God said to Abraham, I will bless you and your descendants. Promise number two, God promised to bring out of Abraham a great nation. Think about that. Abraham's 100 years old. His wife Sarah's 90 years old. They've had no children. And what does God turn around and do? God takes from this man and this woman and creates this nation. There are over six million Jews living in Israel today, over six and a half million living in the United States. That doesn't take into account those who live in other places of the world. God's promises are good. Thirdly. God promised to make him a blessing to many and we have all been blessed because of Abraham and his family and God using them. We have moral truth. We have the Ten Commandments, the Word of God, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Christian faith as a result of God blessing and using Abraham and his descendants. And promise number four, God promised to bless those who blessed Israel and curse those who cursed her. Let me ask you, where, where is Egypt? Where is Assyria? Where is Babylon? Where is Persia? Where is the great Alexander the Great and the, and the Hellenistic Empire? Where is Rome? Where's Spain? Where's Russia? Everybody that's messed with Israel has paid a price for it. And we're going to look at one other nation in a few moments. It is obvious that God loves Israel, that God has been with Israel. And I believe God still is with Israel and still has a plan for his people. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 17, our Lord uh, God spoke these words. It says, then Abram bowed down to the ground, but he laughed to himself in disbelief. How could I become a father at the age of 100, he thought? And how can Sarah have a baby when she's 90 years old? So Abram said to God, may Ishmael live under your blessing. God, how about, here's Ishmael, use Ishmael. But listen to God's response. No, God says. Sarah, your wife, will give birth to a son for you. You will name him Isaac, and I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an here it is as an everlasting covenant. Not one that ends until the New Testament or until Jesus is born, but an everlasting covenant to this day and beyond. And I don't mean disrespect to the Muslims, but the reality is God said, I'm not, you know, Abraham, Ishmael is a result of your decision with Hagar. You disobeyed me. I'm not going to bless through him. I'm going to bless you according to my promise. I told you to wait, and you didn't wait. You rushed things. So understand, Abraham, is going to be through Isaac, from which then comes the lineage of the Jewish people people. Genesis chapter 17 verse 7. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is, here we go again, the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you, and I will give the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner to you and your descendants. It will be their possession for and I will be their God in the same idea I will be their God forever in Amos chapter 9 verse 14 the prophet spoke these words talking about the future he says I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again they will plant vineyards and gardens. They will eat their crops and drink their wine. Verse 15. I will firmly plant them in I will firmly plant them there in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now we know that Israel has been uprooted several times. We know that in 1948 they went back and they went back to the land. Will they be uprooted again? I don't know. Is this the final time? Perhaps so. But God makes it pretty clear. He's going to bring them back to the land, and that land's important to them, and they're not going to be uprooted from that land again. When I go to the text and I just read what the Bible says, and I don't put any spin on it, it sure sounds like God is still in a unique relationship with his people And that that land that he promised is still a good promise. In fact, do you know that Israel has never fully occupied the land that God promised for them? And that day is is yet to come. You go in the New Testament and in Romans chapter 11, Paul says this. I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have had hard hearts. But this will last only until a full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. And so all Israel will be saved. As the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them, that I will take away their sins. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news and this benefits you Gentiles, yet there are still the people, yet they are still the people he loves, because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for god 's gift and His call cannot be withdrawn once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now they are the rebels, and God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in. God's mercy. In other words, Paul makes it pretty clear, I think, that God has a plan for his people. Even in the New Testament. Even Jesus said in Matthew 1928 uh, to his disciples, Sunday you will rule over the twelve tribes of Israel. So I don't see where the Bible says that the church replaces Israel. And I know today that most of the Jews living in Israel are secularists. But the Bible makes it clear there's coming a day when God is going to turn their hearts back to him. And that day may be very soon. And in January I'm going to do a series on prophecy out of Ezekiel chapters 36-39 which pictures that day. When all the nations come against Israel, and it names some of those nations in that prophecy. We see that happening in the news right now. Israel being surrounded. And it says in that day, it'll seem like Israel is at peace, but then those nations will come against her, and no one will defend her, and God will intervene, and, well, that's the series in January. i got to stop, and, and we'll get into that. You say, okay, okay, Dale, with, with what you've just said, then how is it that that godly men believe in replacement theology? You know, they take a different spin, not all of them, just some of them, take a different spin and say, no, that the, the church has replaced Israel. Why, where do they get that from? Because as I was following you in those passages, it certainly doesn't sound like the church has replaced Israel, and that's just a few passages that we were looking at. I want to suggest to you that. The, the, way, the reason they do that is because they look at it more out of tradition than a literal sense of what the scriptures are taking. I also want to suggest to you that it, is, it has been fueled by hatred of the Jews. Now, as I say that, please understand me. I'm not saying that men like Piper and Sproul hate the Jews. In fact, they, they love the Jewish people like they love others as well. They want to see them come to faith in Christ, but, but not because they're special or unique or because the land has been promised to them. However, there are some folks out there who hold to this replacement idea, and their attitude toward Israel is fueled by past hatred in church history, and this is what might open your eyes and may cause your jaw to drop a little bit tonight this weekend. And that is that after the apostles died, if you look at church history, after the apostles died, there was a growing hatred for the Jews by many of the, quote, Christian church fathers who then were leading the church. Remember, in 70 A.D., Rome comes in, as Jesus predicted, and tramples Jerusalem. And the Jews are dispersed. Only a few are left. And so, as the Gentile leaders started kind of heading up the church, they began looking at what was taking place, and they said, you know, those Jews, nearly all the early church fathers believed this, those Jews were the Christ-killers. The reality is, it's not not the Jew who put Jesus on the cross. What put Jesus on the cross? Our sins, your sins, and my sins. But they began to refer to them as the people who killed Christ. The Jews had also been, not all, but many of them had been instrumental in persecuting the early church. Just read, you know, the book of Acts. And so... People start having an attitude toward the Jews and justifying their hatred toward the Jews as a result of that. Just as Christians today can justify their hatred sometimes toward people like toward Muslims or toward other groups that we may disagree with. And you can never justify your hatred. It is wrong to hate another people group. No matter what their religion might be, Jesus taught us that we are to love our what? Our enemies. And it's like, it's, like the, it's like the early church forgot that. And not just the early church, but if you follow church history all the way up to the time of the Reformation, how many of you ever heard of Martin Luther? You know, Martin Luther, for all the good he did, was a hateful man. Did you know that? And hated the Jews, to the point that he wasn't even sure a Jew could become a Christian, could be saved or converted. Now, once in a while, he would talk well about them when it suited him and something he was trying to propose or get by with. But generally speaking, especially as he got older, he was very hateful. And I want to share with you some of the things that Luther said. These are direct quotes. He said, for instance, Set fire to their synagogues and schools. Jewish houses should be razed and destroyed, and Jewish prayer books and the Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, curing, and blasphemy are taught should be taken from them. The rabbis should be forbidden to teach one pain of uh, their f- rabbis should be forbidden to teach on pain of loss of life and limb. Luther proposed seven measures of sharp mercy that German princes, and I want you to hear this, that German princes could take against Jews. Number one, burn their schools and synagogues. Number two, transfer Jews to community settlements. Where do you think Adolf Hitler got some of his ideas? In fact, Hitler looked at Luther in a favorable way. Number three, confiscate all Jewish literature, which was blasphemous. Number four, prohibit rabbis to teach on pain of death. Number five, deny Jews safe conduct so as to prevent the spread of Judaism. Number six, appropriate their wealth and use it to support converts and to prevent the Jews' practice of usury. Number seven, assign Jews to manual labor as a form of penance. Wow. Wow. And it is out of the Reformation that we get what is known as Reformed theology. And there's a lot of good in in Reformed theology. I'm not bashing. Reformed theology, the, theology came out of Lutheranism, Calvinism, etc. But with it also is this strain that runs of, of you know, Israel has lost its importance, lost its blessing because look how bad they were, look at what they have done. They no longer deserve a unique place or position before God. And while, while most replacement theologians don't practice hate, hatred toward the Jews, many of them, as I already said, care about them, want to see them come to faith in Christ. There are some hardcore whose views and attitudes toward Israel borders on anti-Semitism. And so no wonder, coming out of this kind of environment, you'll meet Jews who will have a very hard time with Christianity, who will cite church history to say, but look at what your leader said and taught about us. A parallel tract, this attitude toward the Jews, was also a kind of reinterpretation of the scriptures that went something like this. Look, God made promises to Israel and we've been going along here for you know, 900 years, 1200 years, 1500 years, 1900 years, and Israel is scattered and nothing good is happening to them. And you know what? It, it must be that, that those promises that God made, he, he really must have meant them for a, a different kind of Israel. The church, that is the new Israel. Of course, that's what God meant. Because, look, he's done nothing with the Jews. He's done with them. Because of the way they acted and behaved, it is, the, it is the church that's the new Israel. It's called allegorical interpretation. If you've ever heard of Augustine, he's kind of the champion of that. Well, the problem I have with that is, if you go back and read Peter, Peter tells us about people who were living at that time when Peter was around and leading the church, who were making fun of the Christians saying, so you say that Jesus is coming back? Where is he? I haven't seen him lately. Oh yeah, sure he's coming back. What is taking so long? And I love Peter's response. Remember that? He said, you know, with God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And God is so patient because he's what? Willing that none should perish, but all should come to what? Repentance. And just because God's not doing something in a timely manner as, as I believe He should do it, doesn't mean that God has given up on His plan. It just means that God has His own time when He intends to fulfill it, when He intends to accomplish it. And so, what happened in 1948? Man, God's patient, isn't He? What happened in 1948? Israel became a what? Became a nation. The Jews started to come back. Now, if you want to understand what happened in 1948, you got to understand what happened in 1917. In 1917, Britain was the greatest nation on earth. It said the sun never sets on her empire. She had been blessed by a Jewish scientist who had, uh, during World War I had discovered a, a a chemical uh, to replace gunpowder because they didn't. They Germany was keeping all of that, and in Thanksgiving for his blessing to them, what they decided to do was to ask him, "What would you like to see happen?" And through a different series of conversations, he said, oh, "It'd be great to have a homeland." And so Britain, in its thanks uh, thankfulness, said. We, we should create a, a homeland for Israel. And so you had the Balfour Declaration that was made. And Britain said, we will carve out space because, you know, Britain had taken over the Middle East from the Turks. And we'll give a home to Israel. The League of Nations, the precursor to the UN said, yes, that's, that's what you should do. We will make a mandate that you do that. Well, Jews started coming back and then you start heading toward World War II And Britain gets anxious. She wants the Arabs to be her allies. The Arabs don't like the Jews coming back. And so Britain starts putting limitations on how many Jews can immigrate back to the Holy Land. And then after World War II, Britain basically reneges on its promise to give Israel that special land. Hands it over to the UN. When it's handed over to the UN, the UN needs one more vote. It is one vote shy of actually declaring that Israel could have this land and be a nation. And guess, guess who was going to be up to decide whether Israel was going to be a nation or not? The United States of America. And a president by the name of Harry S. Truman. Do you know that the, Depart- the State Department, the Department of Defense, his leaders came to Truman and said, vote against Israel? Don't do it. There are 640,000 Jews in Israel. There are almost 80 million Arabs. The Arabs have already said they're going to push Israel into the sea. They have no chance. Don't vote for it. But Truman, as a young man, had studied his Bible and believed that God had a special plan for the Jews. And he voted for Israel to become a nation. The day after they became a nation, the last British troops left Israel. And the odds were that the Arabs were going to come in and push them into the Mediterranean Sea. There was no possible way. They didn't have the right ammunition. They didn't have the right machinery. It was a hopeless situation. But hey, guess what happened? Miraculously, Israel survived. Miraculously, she survived. You can't explain it any other way than the providence of God. Battles that should not have been won were won. Then you get to 1967. You ever heard of the Six Days War? Israel should have lost. But once again, there's no way to explain it than the fact that God intervened. My point is simply this. You have scripture to verify that I believe God has a plan for Israel today. That those people are still unique to him And you have history that shows that God has not given up on those folks. You also have England to look at. Britain after that day when she turned her back on Israel. That began her steep decline. And today, Britain is morally bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you and who betray you. I believe one of the reasons why this country has been greatly blessed for all of our troubles and all of our issues, and we are far from a perfect country, is because, is because we have been such a friend to Israel. But I want to tell you something. If we turn our back on her, if we betray her, you don't have to worry about messing with the nation of Israel. You're going to be messing with God. And that's why I think it's a dangerous theology to believe and to teach that the church has replaced Israel. And that that land is not so significant and important. No, the church has not replaced Israel. God still loves those people as stubborn as they are. And a day is coming, we're going to read about it this January, a day is coming when God is going to turn back toward them. Now, If you happen to believe in replacement theology, you know what? Don't send me emails. I've read both sides. I'm not going to argue with you. If you're right, I'll be the first one to humble myself and say, wow, I really misinterpreted that scripture. I just took it for its plain sense. I just thought the Bible spoke what it said. And that's not to put you down. You're welcome to believe your, your view. But I'm telling you what, my conviction is God has His And so if I were to write uh, the candidates, here is what I would write to summarize our whole series. I would say, dear candidate, as you seek the highest office in the land, I hope you will govern according to the truth as it is revealed in God's word. I pray that you will humble yourself daily. Remember that heaven rules. My hope is that you will exercise justice, mercy, and equality for all peoples. And oh... By the way, please don't mess with Israel. But can I say something to you? Honestly, the hope of this nation is not going to be the next president. Whether it's our current president, the incumbent, or the challenger. The truth is, the Democrats want to blame the Republicans for all the problems we have in our nation, and the Republicans want to blame the Democrats for all the problems. And everyone has a part of the blame. But can I say this to you, and I, I struggle to say it, but I'm, I'm going to, because I, I do believe it. You know what You know what the trouble with America today is? You know what our problem is? You know if you really want to blame somebody, you know who you ought to blame? The church. The church. Because we have not lived redemptively in this world. Eighty percent of churches in America are plateaued and declining. Most churches don't see a convert, have no care, no concern for the lost world around them. It's like we've given up and retreated and become inward focused and let the world go to hell around us. Let the nation go to hell around us. The hope, of this, the hope of this nation, folks, is not the Republicans, is not the Democrats, is not President Obama, is not going to be Governor Romney. It hasn't been any president in the past and won't be any president in the future when it's all said and done. while the candidates can make a difference when it's all said and done. I'll tell you what, the hope of this nation is sitting right here and all across this, this, this great land. I love America. I, I'm proud to be and American, when I think about what America has historically stood for in its best moments, in its best moments. But I want to tell you something. As de Tocqueville, the French philosopher and statesman, said when he came to visit America to find out what made America great, he said, What makes America great can be found. On Sunday mornings, they didn't have Saturday service yet. Can be found on Sunday mornings in her churches, in her pulpits, where the truth is proclaimed and a savior is lifted up. Father, we thank you for this nation. We thank you, Father, for the freedom we've had. We thank you for the blessings that have come. But Lord, we would be the first to confess to you that our nation, God, has erred greatly. We have walked away from that truth. We have practiced injustice, inequality. We have the stains. We have the history to show it. But God, I believe in part you have been patient and gracious to us because we have been friends of your people. God, as we look forward to the days ahead, we want to be the kind of nation that you can bless and that you can use. But God, we've got to get back to you. We've got to get back to you. So think about this nation, oh God. In, the, in these political days, point us, point us, please, as believers, away from politics and back to the cross. In Jesus' name.